Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast. Over the summer, we hosted a live stream with Rutger Bregman, the wildly acclaimed Dutch historian and journalist whose book Humankind presents a bold new idea. What if humans were not naturally selfish and self-interested, but good? He was joined in conversation by Philippe Sands, the human rights lawyer and best-selling author for whom this question is absolutely critical. The live stream was chaired by Hannah McInnes. Rutger, perhaps you could, and we will move on to, to much, we'll hone in on sort of specific subjects, but I've heard you outline your book very succinctly a number of times in some interviews. I know you can do it in 10 seconds, but I'm going to grant you a little bit more time than that. If you could just outline the concept of humankind. Sure. So the really, really short version is that most people deep down are pretty decent. Now, the version that's a little bit longer would be something like this. In the past couple of decades, scientists from a variety of disciplines, uh, anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists and you name it, have been moving, I think, from a quite cynical view of human nature to a more hopeful view of who we are as a species. And all of these specialists, well, they're obviously, obviously really brilliant and highly specialized, but they often don't realize, I think, what's going on in the field next to theirs. And that's why I wanted to write this book, is to provide people with a bigger picture uh, of what has been happening. And secondly, why I wanted to write this book is that I think our view of human nature, it's not just a philosophical debate, but it has major political and also individual implications for how you live your life. What you assume in other people is often what you get out of them. So if you assume that most people deep down are just selfish, what Franz de Waal, uh, you know, the Dutch primatologist calls veneer theory, this notion that our civilization is just a thin layer, just a thin veneer, and that below that lies raw human nature, which is just selfish. Well, if you believe that, you start to build your whole society around that idea, your schools, uh, the workplace, uh, how we, you do democracy, even your prisons, etc. And it tends to create the kind of people that your theory presupposes. So one of the things that I wanted to do with this book is say, maybe we can change the world if we update our view of human nature and we could do things in a radically different way. So that's sort of the two halves of the book. The first one is really about this scientific shift. And then the second one is about what happens if we actually believe this. And just before I come on to you, Philip, you nearly called the book, as I understand it, Rousseau was right. (laughs) So I wonder if you could explain this thinking. It's part of an age-old philosophical debate. Thomas Hobbes is very much more often thought of as the realist. Mm -hmm. In your mind, that thinking needs an update. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much everyone will know Thomas Hobbes, right? The famous British philosopher who in the 17th century wrote this very influential book called The Leviathan, in which he argued that a long time ago, when we were still nomadic and gatherers in the so-called state of nature, as philosophers called it, we lived pretty horrible lives, according to Hobbes, you know, lives that were nasty, brutish, and short. And we were only saved from that by civilization when we gave up our liberty and exchanged our liberty for freedom. We basically appointed a very powerful leader uh, that Hobbes called a leviathan, And um, I guess the the basic message here is that because we cannot trust each other, we need hierarchy, right? We need people at the top who are in control because otherwise we'll turn into savages. Now, Rousseau famously made the opposite argument. He said, no, 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 it's actually in the state of nature, 
people were, you know, quite nice and friendly. And those were the good times. It was only when we settled down and someone said, look, this piece of land here, that's mine. And that when we believe that person, that's when we invented civil society and everything went downhill. You know, we got the patriarchy, we got hierarchy, we got wars, murder, genocide, etc. Infection diseases, COVID-19. It's all to blame on civilization, according to uh, Rousseau. And for a very long time, Hobbes was seen as the realist, right? As the one who had his facts right. And Rousseau was seen as the revolutionary idealist, the re crazy French romantic. And indeed, one of the things I try to argue in my book is that Rousseau, maybe, well, he wasn't so stupid after all. It's, it's really fascinating. If you look at the latest evidence that we have from anthropology and archaeology, I would say that about 80 or 90 percent of it fits really well with Rousseau's view of world history. So, Philippe, I mean, taking this concept as a barrister, you know, you're faced with masculine crimes against humanity on an extraordinary scale all the time. How does that then inform your approach to this book, to the philosophy? Is it hard, as one might imagine it is, to feel so hopeful when you're faced so permanently with such sort of the opposite of, of humankind? Thank you. I mean, I listened to Rutger with great interest as I read the book with great interest, but it, it largely, but not completely, chimes with my own experience. Firstly, I am an optimistic person and I do tend to see that the trajectory of humanity is essentially positive and decent, but really appalling things happen the whole time. I haven't done what Rutgers done and stepped back and tried to look at the whole, partly because I'm not equipped to do it. I don't have his training and I don't have the capacity to do that. The way I come to the conclusion that I do is taking micro situations. I deal with a particular situation, a particular individual, and ask myself the question, who is this person really? And what has motivated them to do what they've done? And one of the theses of Rutger that I, is absolutely consistent with my experience is that it's nurture, not nature. The people that I come across sometimes meet personally who've done monstrous things. I reach the conclusion that they didn't come into the world sort of, you know, circuited to do monstrous things. Something happened to them that caused them to go in that direction. But more specifically, and this comes out, really, if you look at the couple who were at the center of the rat line, Otto and Charlotte Wächter, some have criticized me for never calling them monsters. They're not monsters. Otto, in particular, SS officer, did absolutely monstrous things. But here's the difficulty. He was also capable of decency and generosity and love and humanity. And I think that the human is not a binary. It's not that they're good or bad or evil or mean or nice or very nice. It's that something happens to some human beings in some circumstances that causes them to cross a line. I don't think I'm capable of articulating a theory as to when and why that happens. But I can say this, across the totality of cases that I've been involved in over 35 years, there is one point of commonality. And I'd be really interested to know how Rutger integrates it into his thesis. And it is this, nasty things happen when a process of othering takes place. This is who we are. This mm -hmm. is who they are. 
they're not like us, they're different, they're not really human, we can treat them in this nasty and malicious way. I don't have an explanation as to how that process of othering happens, whether that's nature or nurture. Mm -hmm. I'd really like to hear Rotger on that. Mm -hmm. But that's the point of commonality that Mm -hmm. causes someone like Otto Wächter, supported by his wife Charlotte, to engage in industrial scale mass murder, but leave his son saying, actually, dad was a really nice guy. Mm. And that's the complexity. Yeah. Rutger, you say that so so regularly in the book, you you say, as you alluded to in the beginning, we're born much more, you know, friendly and sociable creatures, but we are born, you write, with tribalism hardwired into our brains. And it's those two things that sit in this funny place together, that we're sociable creatures, we form bands of brothers, but mm-hmm. with that, we then become inclined to sort of xenophobia and, and racism. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the most interesting new theories from evolutionary psychology is this idea that we humans have domesticated ourselves, just as we have domesticated sheep and, and, and cows, etc., which we have selected for tameness and friendliness. The idea is that we've also done that to ourselves in, say, the last 40 to 50,000 years. There's really striking evidence for that. You can see it, for example, in uh, in archaeology, that if you compare human skulls from 50, 40, 30, 20,000 years ago, we just start looking friendlier and friendlier and friendlier. It's, it's what scientists call survival of the friendliest. And they, they argue that this is our true superpower, that we humans were able to cooperate on a scale that no other animal in the animal kingdom can do. You know, individually, we're not very special, but collectively, we can do extraordinary things. And a lot of people say, oh, that's wonderful, survival of the friendliest. But maybe this friendliness is exactly the problem. You know, we humans, we just want to be liked. We just want to be part of a group. And then if you look at, or you ask the question, who are the great heroes in history? You know, the people who really stood up to injustice, the Greta Thunbergs or the Martin Luther Kings, etc. They often seem very different from sort of the archetypal human that I sketch in my book. You know, they were willing to go against a group, etc. So it's it's highly paradoxical, right? On the one hand, you can say survival of the friendliest. On the other hand, you can say survival of the cowards, right? <laughs> because we, we humans find it very hard to go against a group or, or to put it differently, we just want to be liked. We desperately want to be liked. And then indeed, if you connect that to the process of dehumanization that you described, Philip, you know, one of the dark truths there is, um, is that Actually, people who are more empathetic more often want vengeance when something terrible happens. There there are really clear examples of this this in the uh, the Middle East, right? The Israel-Palestina conflict happens all the time. You know, there's a terrible attack uh, on one side, and then there's a lot of empathy for the victims. And what do you want? Well, actually, people who want more, who feel more empathy, this has been studied by scientists, often want more vengeance as well. And so it goes on and on and on. And while you humanize those around you, your friends and your family members and the, the people who are from your group, you tend to dehumanize those others. Now, what I argue in the book is that it hasn't always been the case, right? So, and I think in a nomadic and together environment, that was quite different because societies were much more flexible and it was easier actually to, to meet, hear and see other people. I, I think that face-to-face human contact is, is one of the great antidotes to dehumanization. Not always, by the way, but it's one of the antidotes we have. Uh, but then when people become more abstract, right, when they just become numbers in a bureaucracy and, and you don't meet them anymore, et cetera, then over time, the most horrible things can happen. 
Now, obviously, I, I, I wrestle a lot with this, obviously, in the book. It's one of the big questions that hangs over a book like humankind. How can you ever argue for a hopeful history or, or human friendliness when Auschwitz you know, happened, when, that, when the Holocaust happened, when all of that existed? I guess what I wanna, one of the most important things I want to get across is that we should go away from the superficial theories that say, oh, look, humans are just evil, and this, is, this was just human nature showing its true face. I think we need a much more layered, highly complex explanations of how people who were indeed, as Philip said, born as babies into this world, and they weren't monsters. And in a way, they they never became monsters. Because if you say they're just monsters, then you maybe you trivialize it in a way as well. So um, it's yeah, it's it's really one of the things I wrestle with within the book. And I'm and I'm not sure if that I've done a good of enough job. People uh, will have to judge. I, I must say I don't. I've never started, I myself have never started from the proposition that those theses that people are just born evil and nasty and there is this veneer, that's never really resonated with me. And I, I want to put to Rutger just a, an, another way of looking at this across time. It, it's, it's often said to me that there are now more wars and they're nastier and that we're more brutal but my suspicion is that the reality is simply that we now have the technologies, the media, yeah. including social media, that allow us to know instantly when something has happened. So it's not that more nasty things go on, but we are more instantly aware of them. And my own sense in terms of the historical work, you know, when I deal with some of the cases, but just to give, just to give an example of the sense of history and how psychology, human psychology plays into a historical analysis. When I was doing the case for the government of Croatia against the government of Serbia at the World Court, in which Croatia was arguing that the crimes committed at a place called Vukovar, killing mm. of hundreds of Croats by Serbs, was a genocide. We, a bunch of you know, British, American, European, international lawyers, had to draft what was called the memorial. It's the first... It's the first pleading in a case, uh, not so far from where you are, Rutger, at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And so we sat in London and we debated, where should we start the story? And we thought, okay, well, we'll start the story in 1986, because that's when Slobodan Milosevic put down on paper for the first time the idea for a greater survey. We thought the judges will understand that. That's the place to start. We did our you know, 400-page draft memorial, sent it off to capital, was summoned to visit capital to discuss it with people of the highest level. When I say the highest level, right at the very top, summoned. And they said, no, Professor Sands, you've made a fundamental mistake here. This story did not start in 1986. This story started in 1372 in the Battle of Pristina. Mm -hmm. And that's when they started attacking us. And that's when all the last years started. And it predated even that. In other words, I don't know how, Rutger, you integrate into your analysis the psychological, the psychoanalytical, the psychiatric element of the way in which generations of human beings integrate into their being collective and individual memory, causing them in 1993 to do extremely nasty things to human beings because of something that happened 700 years ago. I mean, we'll say to the the lawyers who are instructing us, well, look, frankly, the judges are going to have no bloody interest in what happened mm -hmm. the 14th mm -hmm. century. And then, no, 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 you've got to put all of that in. It's very important. You're, you're reinforcing the sense of narrative and collective history. What is the place 
in your thesis mm -hmm. for the manner in which the human is informed, influenced, affected by collective memory and by silences and stories that are passed down the generations. I think one of the disturbing things is that very often evil is committed in the name of the good, right? We all have seen, or many of us have seen the Batman movies and, and, and the Joker, you know, the, the, the classic sadistical uh, person who just enjoys violence, who just wants to watch the world burn. And I'm not saying that these people don't exist. They're, they're there, you know, psychopaths exist, but it's quite rare. And, and most of, of evil in this world comes from people who actually they believe they're on the good side of history. I've got one chapter in my book devoted to uh, the German Wehrmacht, that, you know, the German army that was fighting you know, very intensely still in 1944 and 1945. They were not willing to give up. And allied psychologists really couldn't understand what was going on. You know, why were they still fighting so hard while well, the Russians were coming in the East and, um, and D-Day had already happened? It was, it was clearly a lost cause. And so they started interviewing prisoners of war and um, to their surprise found that most of these soldiers weren't that heavily ideologically indoctrinated, you know, not, not like their leaders, um, but actually it was kamaradship, comradeship that most of these soldiers were fighting for. Uh, they didn't want to let their friends down. They were indeed bands of brothers. Um, and this was actually, the German army command knew this. So they, they, they used this and manipulated it and, and made sure that these bands of brothers stayed together. So they, they were the most effective fighting forces. Now, obviously, that explanation is not going to work for Otto von Wachter, right? Um, you need a very different kind of explanation there where ideology probably plays a much more important role. But again, he probably believed he was in the right side of history, that he was doing the world a great service. And I'm not saying this as if it should be comforting. Actually, I think it's incredibly disturbing. I think that that's sometimes been a little bit weird in the reception of my book is that people say, oh, Rutger says, Evil is good after all, and so we should all be happy. But <laughs> I don't see it that way. I think it's incredibly disturbing because if it if evil just comes from I don't know a conspiracy of bad people, well, you can just round the bad people up, put them in jail, execute them, or whatever, and then then it's over. But it's actually um, it's much more more difficult than that. You see, I I what doesn't resonate with me is that it's mm -hmm. ideology. So I found myself a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm standing in the Great Hall of Justice in The Hague, mm -hmm. doing the case for the Gambia against Myanmar mm -hmm. in relation to the mistreatment of the Rohingya. And remarkably, Aung San Suu Kyi turned up in The Hague. You'll remember it. There's a lot of palaver, a lot of media, huge amounts of attention because she was there. And I found myself sitting literally four feet from her for four mm -hmm. or five days. It was a very surreal and curious experience because... This lady, a remarkable human being by any standard, had been an iconic hero for us, had mm -hmm. won the Nobel Prize for Peace, mm -hmm. had been given a doctorate by Oxford University for her commitment to fundamental human rights of all. And yet it turned out that she absolutely despised members of the Muslim community, part of the Rohingya group, to the point that she couldn't even bring herself to say the word Rohingya. So mm -hmm. that just sitting there sort of observing her and the flowers she put freshly into her hair each morning, perfectly turned out, incredibly articulate. What did we miss? Mm. She didn't, she was the same person. And what I understood as she was making her arguments, defending the indefensible and unable to talk about rape on an industrial scale of her own people, unable to mention the Rohingya by name, 
I realized it wasn't a bad ideology. It was about her dad. Her father had created the Myanmar military, and that military was the body that was alleged to have engaged in this systematic mass murder. Mm-hmm. Right. And in defending the Tat Madur, what she was really doing was mm. defending her father. It wasn't yeah. about ideology. It was, it was about honor of the family, mm. honor of the group, family memory, family identity. And, mm. and, and that's what I think these things are more often about than ideology. And that's what bothers me mightily. I'm often asked the question, do I think I, Philippe Sands, could engage in the kinds of things that Vechter or Aung San Suu Kyi did? And I have to put my hand on my heart and say, I hope not. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Maybe there are circumstances. And I've had to reflect on why I might do that. But I think that all of us, in theory, are capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Most of us don't. And that's the interesting question for me. What is the force at play? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it's empathy. I don't think it's ideology. What comes into play that mm-hmm. causes us to desist? Mm-hmm. I was on a vacation last week and I read two books. The first book was your book, The Red Line. And uh, the second book was uh, by Jill Laporte, Her History of America, These Truths, uh, which is, uh, I think, an, a really, really good book, just as your book is, is really incredible. And what especially struck me was the first half of the book and her discussion of the founding fathers and how they talked about slavery. As you, as you probably know, pretty much all the founding fathers owned slaves. Only one of them, John Adams, didn't. And the way they discussed slavery as sort of the progressive, civilized intellectuals of their age, it's really striking. And, and what it made me think is, what are the horrors that are happening today you know, that I am involved in, that I participate in, the moral horrors, and that the historians of the future, that, that they'll say, you know, that was horrific. But we were just, you know, we were just like, oh, that's just what, what life is. That's just what, what it is. And, um, you know, the clearest example, I guess, for me is, is the way we treat animals. Is that I, can, I can imagine that, you know, historians of the future or the lawyers of the future will say, well, this is this was the most horrific crime and pretty much everyone participated in it. I mean, they knew, they knew that all the scientific evidence was there that these animals suffer and they're tortured on an industrial scale just for the pleasure of eating meat and dairy. And it wasn't necessary and people were just blind to it. Now, I ate meat for, what is it, 28 years? I ate dairy for 33 years. I only stopped like a couple of weeks ago. Was I a monster all that time? I don't think so. Hopefully not. I mean, many of my best friends, people that I deeply love, they eat meat, they drink milk, etc. What will the historians of the future say about them? Now, I'm not saying this is this is obviously in in many ways it's different as well, you know, from the questions of how we treat other human beings and, and genocide. But I don't know. It's it's sort of disturbing and interesting to to look at these issues in from the perspective of the historians of the future. Right? What will they say about us? What I'm also interested in, and maybe I, this is something for another book, is how does that change? Because it doesn't really change with the, the homo puppies that I talk about in my book. It's one of the great paradoxes, right? Is that these people who, ju- who just want to be liked, who are, you know, who are friendly and who have evolved to work together, they find it really hard to go against the group, right? I've, I've, I've found it fascinating that it, this is what Greta Thunberg said in one of her interviews, is that she sees her... Asperger syndrome as one of her superpowers, right? That she's able to, to 
to say the truth in a way and, and act upon that truth that maybe other people are find much more difficult. I don't know. There's probably, there's, there's probably much more nuance to it than that, but yeah, in a, in a way, sometimes this, this, this fundamental humanity, this friendliness is exactly the problem and stands in the way of progress. I'm glad you, you sort of brought up, I mean, at, the way we treat our animals and, you know, essentially our planet, the way we treat our planet, because it sort mm. of leads on to another really interesting sort of part of this discussion about the language around humanity and human kindness and making us out to be destructive and, and careless and with sort of disregard for the planet we live on. That's the language around climate and the planet. But I mean, Rutger, you say in the book that environmental activists sort of underestimate the resilience of humankind and this cynicism that the language that the language we use around climate change becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. It's something I'd love to hear from both of you on because Philippe, I know you are doing a lot of work at the moment to get ecocide, the, the destruction of the planet, recognised as a crime in the same way as crimes against humanity are recognised. So I want to explore with you both how to get the language right around that. Sure. I mean, just coming back to, to your question and Rutger's observation and linking the two, I mean, of course, the big issue of the day is the massive destruction of biodiversity and climate change. I, I mean, it may well be that it's not such a big problem and we'll somehow muddle through and get through it and be fine. My instinct is there's a problem coming and it's a seriously big problem. And to be precautionary, we need to do something about it. But the essence is we're all contributing. I contribute. You know, I drive a car. I eat things I probably shouldn't eat. I travel to places I probably shouldn't travel by means I shouldn't travel. Does that make me an ecocidaire? Am I a climate criminal? So taking it a step further, some of the cases that I do are maritime boundary disputes between countries that want to resolve their maritime boundary disputes in order to access the resources, the oil and gas that lies below the sea. Should I be stopping doing that? Taking Rutgers point, in 60 years time, people may well say, oh yeah, that Sands guy who was facilitating opening up oil and gas fields around the world, he's the kind of guy who was one of the major criminals because he opened up all this activity. Things do indeed change. But what's interesting in the exercise we've just been through, I was co-chair of a, an independent working group trying to come up with a definition of the concept of ecocide, which has been around for quite a long time, since Olaf Palmer opened the 1972 Stockholm Conference on the Environment and mentioned the word. But the fundamental issue of interest at the heart of it is that unlike the four existing international crimes, waging illegal war, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, Ecocide isn't about protecting the human. It's not anthropocentric. It's ecocentric. It's essentially about protecting the planet, irrespective of the impact on human beings. And the reaction to that has been fascinating, that as human beings, many people have, we have all, because through centuries, through millennia, we have, most of us, to a large extent, placed ourselves and our communities at the heart of things. And I think what we're beginning to understand now, and the pandemic is, in a sense, facilitating it, actually, we can't control everything. Actually, there are forces that are more powerful than we are. There is this extraordinarily resilient and smart virus that keeps mutating and varying and causing further mayhem just when we thought we'd, we'd nipped it. And I think it points to an essential truth, which is where there are limits to our autonomy and to our power. And I'm wondering what that will do about being nice 
to others and nice to each other. I, I, I think that we're on the cusp of a very major problem. Rutger, did you want to answer, respond to that? Well, a couple of things. So we all know the genre of disaster movies, right? Hollywood movies about earthquakes or tsunamis or pandemics and whatever. And the story is pretty much always the same is that when a crisis hits, people start plundering and looting and raping and pillaging and they, they show who they really are. So again, this veneer theory. One of the things I wanted to show in my book is that actually pretty much the opposite happens. So we have a lot of evidence, hundreds of studies that have been done by sociologists and anthropologists around the globe, in Japan, in the US, for example, after Katrina in 2005. And what these scientists have seen every time, time and time again, is that when there's a crisis, when disaster strikes, you usually get an explosion of cooperation and of people working together, you know, very different kind of people from the left to the right, rich, poor, young, old. That was also really what happened after Katrina in the US. Obviously, the press was full of stories about looting and plundering, etc. But it was only later that researchers found out that actually most of these stories were just rumors, were not based on facts, and that pretty much the opposite happened. That can give us a little bit of hope, I would say, that this is our intuitive reaction to these kind of things. Now, I've got one chapter in the book about what happened on Easter Island, right? This remote island in the middle of the Pacific that is often used by people who are quite pessimistic about the way we're heading with, uh, with the climate as an example of how a civilization can destroy itself. So you've got these amazing statues that we've all seen on, on Easter Island um, that they um, they made hundreds and hundreds of them. And the standard story is that they cut down all the trees to erect the statues and to transport the statues. And that, yeah, they pretty much destroyed their own environment, their, their, their forest, and that therefore they didn't have anything to eat anymore. Civil war broke out and they became cannibals, et cetera, et cetera. It's just sort of the standard story of human arrogance and hubris of ecocide leading to to genocide, basically, that the more killing each other. Now, what I wanted to show in that chapter is that the real story is actually very different. So archaeologists and anthropologists now believe that the real story of Easter Island is a story of resilience, that yes, at some point, all the trees were gone, not because they had some obsession with building these statues. It was probably because of, of a plague of rats, but they adapted. You know, they came up with new agricultural techniques and actually the, the fruit production went up. And it was only when the Europeans came with their diseases and, you know, they're the, the slave traders. That's when the Easter Island civilization was destroyed. It's a very different kind of story, uh, in a way more pessimistic, especially about colonialism, but also more optimistic about the possibility of adaptation and resilience. And why is this important? You could say, well, who cares about Easter Island? Why is that relevant for us today? Well, I think that we humans, we tend to become the stories that we tell ourselves. And... Um, that's also why I think that hope is, is something of a moral duty, right? Hope is not about the inevitability of that things will turn out to be all right. It's, that's why I sort of dislike the word optimism. Optimism suggests a form of complacency to me, just as cynicism is a, is a form of lacency, uh, of laziness, sorry. But um, yeah, we need these sort of hopeful stories about that. In some circumstances, humans can adapt, right? And there are always people coming up with new ideas and new solutions, et cetera, et cetera. Hello, it's Vas here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, 
is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your thesis, like any argument I make in court, is dependent on running with a particular narrative about what happened. Mm. And of course, you know, and I know from our different perspectives, that there's always different ways to explain what actually happened. You know, I sit in court, I've made the arguments for our side, and then the other side just tells a completely different story about what happens. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, that's actually pretty plausible. (laughs) And I'm thinking, Mm. shit, we're going to go down in flames here because their story is more plausible than our story. And it reminds me always when I'm sitting in court of these wonderful movies that take a single moment from three different perspectives. You might have seen it, Run, Lola, Run, mm-hmm. recent, where you just see a moment where uh, something bad happens. But then as the film unfolds, you see the same moment from a different vantage point. And you mm-hmm. understand each time you have a sort of mind shift. Rashomon is the great movie that did that. If your account of what happened on Easter Island turns out to be wrong because in 47 years, someone else comes along and says, actually, that last theory that the, mm-hmm. this Bregman guy relied upon has been shown to be hopeless. Mm-hmm. What happens to your thesis? <laughs> you just write another book? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a really good question. Look, what I tried to do while I was writing my book is to write something that people could still read 10 years from now. And it was really, really difficult because every single time, you know, there's a new paper from from science or nature that fits really well with your thesis. And you're like, oh, I got to use this. This really, you know, this really shows what I'm talk- talking about. And the temptation to use it is really there. But you wonder, will it replicate? Right. Will this hold up? And as you know, there's a huge replication crisis in social psychology, especially, you know, most of the of the big theories that are still in the textbooks that today, they don't replicate. It's <laughs> there's a lot that, you know turns out to be garbage. So that's what I had in my mind while I was writing this book. How can I write something that will hold up? And what you start to do is actually to rely on much older theories and research traditions. And sometimes the ideas that you come up with are a little bit of cliches, right? It's like, oh, surely. Yeah, of course. So for example, I've got one chapter in the book about contact theory, Hmm. the best medicine we have against hate prejudice and racism. It's a theory that goes back to the 1950s, developed by a psychologist called Gordon Alport. We've hundreds and hundreds of studies that indeed show that contact works pretty well. You know, if people from different backgrounds, you know, black and white and rich and poor and you name it, do something together, meet each other more often when we design for diversity, that really works well. It's obviously incredibly difficult to do it in practice, right? Because the forces of segregation are very, very strong. If you just think about schools, for example, I mean, it's easier said than done to say, well, we should just have diverse schools. But then, how, yeah, how do, how do you convince all the parents, especially the rich parents? But this is one of those things that I think really hold up quite well. So I'm, I'm not saying you're relativistic, but I think we have, we have learned some things that we I, really, really know about, I've about got human say, nature. I've got to say, I don't think the contact theory works at all. I mean, whether you take... <laughs> 
um, the situation in the Austro-Hungarian Empire mm -hmm. and three different communities living together for a century and a half, mm. you know, from the 18th century right up to 1945, mm -hmm. Poles, Ruthenians, Ukrainians, and Jews. Mm. And basically, they separate out into being on their own, having lived together for 180 years. Yeah. If you take Brexit, actually, one thesis about Brexit is there was too much contact. All these folks that actually we thought we really liked, mm. half the country didn't like them at all, or there were too many yeah. of them around, or there were too many from that part, not enough from this part. Mm. So I must say, one of the challenges, of course, of writing the book that you've written is that mm -hmm. our understanding of what goes on is transformed over time. And for each theory going in one direction, I, I have to, you deal with it in the macro theory. Your challenges are huge. I only have to deal with it in a single case. And yeah. I find that confusing enough, I've got to say. Yeah. I mean, I, it's really important to actually mention that Rutger mentions um, the referendum and Brexit in the UK and, and finds that actually, you know, that that wasn't necessarily the case, that in the places where there mo were most contacts, I mean, it's, a, it's a, again, as we're discovering with everything, there's two sort of sides to that story, Rutger. Well, indeed, there are some studies that show that indeed in more diverse neighbourhoods, people tended to vote remain and indeed in the more sort of segregated neighborhoods. Anyway, um, you're absolutely right, Philip. This is a really difficult, the, the, obviously everything depends on how you define contact. I, I mean- It's that, not a critique of your work. It's- No, no, no. Teasing no, out no. the issues. Yeah. No, but obviously there's a whole whole research tradition that builds on contact analysis and context theory where, they, where scientists try to find the right preconditions. You know, it has to be genuine contact. It's not just living next to each other. Maybe it's not enough. And- yeah. And maybe especially if you live in segregated neighborhoods where you do everything differently, right? You go to, you have your own uh, supermarket, you have your own religion, you have everything different. And, and but you, you are confronted with this, these different people all the time. Well, maybe that makes you hate them even more. Yes, maybe that's, that's, that's true. But then again, you're, you're right that people live together for centuries, right? In many of these diver incredibly diverse cities in Europe. And then uh, that diversity was destroyed in many places. I don't know. I guess one of the one of the most important things that I want to get get across about that period is that you know after the Second World War there were all these social psychological experiments. For example, the Stanford Prison Experiment and maybe most famously the, the Stanley Milgram Shock Machine Experiment that tried to show that evil is just below the surface. Right? That you can very easily convince normal people who actually claim to be pacifists to give incredibly dangerous, potentially lethal electric shocks to completely innocent people in another room. And this was, I think, a, just a modern version of veneer theory. Again, this notion that you know, it's just below the surface. And I think that really, really trivialized what happened. It's also, by the way, how we sometimes, especially people in the West, talk about the genocide in Rwanda, that it's sometimes described as sort of this, this outbreak of savage behavior that suddenly happened or something like that. No, it's not at all. It has a very deep history there. You have to really understand the colonial history of Rwanda and the role the Belgians played, et cetera, et cetera, and the whole buildup. Now, I'm not saying this to, to, I don't know, to condone anything or to make things more comfortable, but yeah, it's, it's very, very different from the, the standard veneer theory that is still, I think, quite influential in our culture, which, which uh, emphasizes all the time that, you know, this is just human nature. Or people are just selfish or we are just monsters or whatever. Let's talk a little bit about justice and, and some of your solutions, Rucker, that you come up with in the book. And there's a chapter you call Drinking Tea with Terrorists. And I just really would love to hear from you both on this 
in your research, you know, you went to prisons in Norway where the rate of repeat offence was 50% lower than sort of stricter prisons and community sentencing because they were they were treating them with much more kindness, more humanity. You also talk about um, in Aarhus in Denmark where they sat down to sort of try and empathise with those who might be lured into terrorism. Their, their idea was to sort of drink tea with them rather than throw mm-hmm. them behind bars. And, and you say, you know, more democracy and more humanity and openness is the harder approach. I just mm. want to hear from you both about that. I mean, Philippe, from your day-to-day work, do you think that that is wishful thinking or is that tolerant, less divisive way of dealing with terrorists um, and criminals something that should be employed more? No, I'm pretty much with Rutger. I mean, I think that the harsh approach leaves a deep sense of hurt that then re-emerges decades later, perhaps, or even in future generations. And I think essentially the brutal, short, sharp shock theory, I'm pretty convinced, replicates other horrors. I mean, we know, we know there's a lot of work now done that those people who tend to abuse children sexually are very often, not always, but very often people themselves who have been subjected to some form of abuse, including sexual abuse. We now have many theories of justice, a very keen sense of what makes people who go through various forms of punishment Mm -hmm. um, perpetrate the same offences again, or worse still, pass it on to their descendants. Now, how we deal with that, I think mm. it's much more problematic. It's sort of outside of my pay grade. I, but I think the essential observation that Rutger makes chimes very much with my own, my own experience. I guess one of the questions is, how far can you take this? So the criminal justice system in Norway is, for many people, it's, it's, it seems bizarre, right? Here you have these prisons where the inmates can socialize with the guards, you know, they barbecue together, for example, Uh, they can go skiing or to the cinema, they've got their own music studio, they've got their own music label, which is called Criminal Records, right? Um, It seems very bizarre, but then indeed it works. So the recidivism rate, it's it's nowhere as low as as in Norway. These are the most effective prisons out there. And so criminologists from around the globe, they they go to Norway to study it because they find it fascinating. But then for many people, there seems something wrong with it because the only punishment is, well, obviously they're not free to leave the prison, right? But apart from that. And um, I was thinking about this, Philip, when I was reading um, your book last week, because Horst, you know, the, the son of the Nazi criminal, he he really has this tendency to come up with explanations for everything, right? It's always the system. It's always the context. And in a way, yes, that's true, right? There are always causes. People are, you know, they come into this world as innocent babies, and there are always reasons why they become who they are, right? There's always something external to you. Hmm. And you didn't choose your mother and your father, and you didn't choose the school you went to, you didn't choose... I don't know the, how the neurons and the electrons and blah, 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 behave, how they behave in your brain in a way. I've always believed that free will on a philosophical level can't really exist, right? We live in a causally determined universe, or maybe it's chaos, but at least in a fundamental way, we don't choose who we are. 
but then clearly Horace goes way too far, right? And you become incredibly frustrated with him as you read the book. So I was wondering how you think about that dilemma as a, as a lawyer. There's a brilliant moment in the Nuremberg trial. I mean, Horst is treading a well-worn path. There's a brilliant moment in the Nuremberg trial towards the end when Hans Frank, who had been Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer for five years, becomes the only one of the 22 defendants actually in the dock who accepts a degree of responsibility for the horrors. But he frames it in a particular way. He says, I was part of a system. And as a German who is responsible for these things, I am responsible for the terrible things that happened. He then goes, leaves the courtroom, goes and has lunch with his buddies, and they all jump up and down on him and throw bricks at him. No person can ever say this. You can't accept collective responsibility. No person can ever say the guilt of the Germans will operate for a thousand years. And so three months later, he retracts hmm. his partial acceptance of responsibility. And the one thing he never does, even privately with his own family, is accept individual responsibility. And it, it's why it brings me back to where we began our conversation at the beginning, which seems fundamentally at the heart of what you've written and what I've written. The relationship with the individual and the group, whether it's as a family mm -hmm. member or an ethnic group or a religious group, there is something that cuts in to our sense of associations. E.O. Wilson says it's biological. I don't know whether, I'm not a biologist, mm -hmm. I have no idea, but there's strong theories that say it's innate, it's biological, that's how we're wired now, and we can't escape it. And that individual collective relationship, I think, is at the core. And it's the answer to the question of whether we can be optimistic. I am optimistic, and I end up feeling more optimistic because I think for most people, they are able under the right conditions to jump out of their little ghetto of group identity. But right now we're being pushed into that ghetto by various governments. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned about what it's leading to. There's a really strong parallel you brought up, Horst, between both of your work, which I, I really think is important to bring out. Rutger, you say generally through your research, through your through science, humans are not wired for war. And generally, I mean, you've, the cavemen, no depiction of war on the walls. Soldiers are reluctant always in, in, in what you describe, essentially to kill each other face to face. And there's a really interesting moment in the Ratline Fleet where Horst is saying to you, that his father wrote in the letter, I had to kill 52 Poles. Horst uses that as an example, as I think Rutger perhaps would, of his humanity. He says he's writing, I had to kill them. It was against his nature. I'm not sure whether you bought that. Or, or... No, I didn't buy it at all. I mean, the letter, it's a letter home to his wife, where he says, oh, we have marvellous times in Krakow. The Vienna Philharmonics come to visit. Lots of humanity, lots of love, lots of decency, lots of wonderful things. And then he writes, and tomorrow I have to have 50 Poles killed. Mm. Reprisal killing because a couple of Germans were killed and Hitler has ordered 25 to be killed. So I show this letter to Horst and he, he takes it. And you're, you're absolutely right, Rutger. He is extraordinary. And the, and the complexity with Horst is I really like him. I don't like his views and I don't like his interpretations of history, but he's a sweet, nice, decent human being who wouldn't hurt a fly and as he says, I just want to find the good in my father. And so he, he looks at the letter and he says, yes, well, you see, Philippe, it says, he says, I have to have 50 Poles killed tomorrow. It doesn't say I want to have them killed. You see, it proves 
He's a decent, nice, humane person. Mm. I mean, I don't buy that for a single second, mm. but mm. it provides a rationale for a son and now for the grandchildren. Yeah. Going yeah. Forward. That's the terrible tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. That really is a tragedy. The loyalty of a son still to his father, even though he's a war criminal indeed. Yeah. And um, let me move on to some of the audience questions. Ethan says, do you believe it's possible that humans are morally neutral, being instead driven by an innate sense of utility? As an example, the subjects of Milgram's experiment, which we haven't gone into, but which you talk about in the book, and uh, acted neither immorally nor morally. Their mm. intentions were driven by utility, um, mm-hmm. specifically in the name of medical advancement, which you, you talk about um, at length in the book. Perhaps we'll start with you, Rutger, and then... Well, the question of what is good and what is evil is obviously a really important, important and difficult question to answer, right? Because as, as we talked about earlier, maybe the historians of the future will think we are really evil in some ways, right? That we don't know about yet right now, or we should know, but we're blind to. I guess w- what I talk about more in the book is that we are, I don't know, fundamentally social and we fundamentally want to connect with one another. We're not egoists or we're not fundamentally selfish, If you think, for example, about some of our fundamental needs, right? We need food in order to survive. And that makes evolutionary sense because if we don't eat, we die. Uh, We enjoy sex because if we have sex, then we can get kids. And that also helps us as a species, right? To survive. Now, what I find interesting is that when you draft soldiers and you send them into war, that many of these soldiers find it incredibly difficult to do what they're asked to do, to be violent. We have a lot of evidence from wars throughout history that especially soldiers who are not experts at what they do, you know, they've just average guys who've been drafted. And there's evidence from the Second World War that only 15 to 25% of soldiers were actually able to, to pull the trigger and to shoot. Many couldn't. And when they do, for example, we know this from the war in Vietnam, when soldiers do shoot to kill, then they come back and they often are traumatized. You know, they develop PTSD. And there are much higher rates of PTSD among soldiers who have killed than among those who haven't, which seems weird to me. If, if it's true that we're really like these killer apes deep down, then why would it traumatize us to kill someone else? Now, obviously, the counter argument here is that, well, Otto, the Nazi criminal, he wasn't traumatized, right? He wasn't. So people can also go through a whole process where they've so thoroughly dehumanized other people. It's that they don't see people anymore. They just see rats or things. They've completely dehumanized that, that other person. But that is something they really have to go through, right? They have to build a lot of psychological protections and walls, etc., to insulate themselves from the truth because the truth would destroy them. It would traumatize them. You know, it would, in a way, psychologically kill them to really, I mean, that that's, in a way, that's true for, for the son who talks about his father. It's just too painful to acknowledge the reality there. And again, this is not, I don't mean to condone anything here. To me, this is incredibly disturbing that we humans can do that. But I also see some hope in the fact that when you just send average, normal, healthy human beings, you send them to the front in a war, most of us can do it. We find it, violence is actually very hard for most of us. I mean, I think you have to distinguish between different types of people in different situations. It's mm-hmm. why people do what they do. And I think the foot soldiers is one thing and the leaders is another thing. For the foot soldiers, it's largely, I mean, the utility is survival, I think, very often. And just getting on with daily life and being able to pay your rent and feed your kids and 
for many people, that is, you know, I mean, the foot soldiers of the Tatma door, I suspect that is just what they're doing. It's the leaders that's more problematic. It's when a leader reaches a line and can go one way, which is the right way, or another way, which is the wrong way. What motivates that decision? And I've got to say, in my experience, you know, I've got a friend, I don't know whether it's a friend or a former friend right now, who's a minister in the current British government. And it has upset me greatly that he has done nothing about child refugees coming into the United Kingdom. And we've had some bitter exchanges about this. What's it really about? It's pretty obvious what it's about. It's going up the greasy pole. It's self-advancement. It's not ideology. It's not, you know, survival. It's ambition. And I think that factor cuts in for a lot of people at the top as to why they do things. And that ambition confronts the moral choices of doing what's right or wrong. And some people at that point will say, I step down and I go. But others, frankly, who should know better, don't do that. Mm. And that's when the problems begin. That's my sentiment. Yeah, well, I would, yeah, I would really agree that. there. You talk about that. Um, perhaps you could you know, add to that in the sort of part of your book, obviously yeah. power corrupts and, and the effect that it has in sort of getting rid of yeah. that sense of shame. Yeah, this is one of those other psychological theories that I think we have enough evidence for. Indeed, power corrupts. There's even some evidence on a neurological level, right? That powerful people, if you put them in a brain scanner, sort of the regions that are involved with feelings of empathy, they just don't really light up anymore. So I guess we we, we very often see this in our society. And I guess one of the disturbing things is that sometimes we've created systems that actually select for this, right? So it, it sometimes becomes a bit of an evolutionary advantage in our social systems to be more shameless or to be more corrupt in a way. Uh, I think it's it's one of the indictments of um, what we call uh, democracy in, in this world today is that if you look at Brazil or the US or India, is that very often the narcissists come out on top, right? It's not survival of the friendliest anymore, but it's survival of the shameless. Now, there's a lot of interesting anthropology about this. So, Anthropologists done, have done a lot of studies of nomadic and together tribes, right? And, and these uh, have political systems that we call a reverse dominance hierarchy. So it's not like a pyramid, but it's like a pyramid on top. So the group controls the leaders. And what's very important for the leaders is to be humble, right? So there are leaders, usually they just are, they're just more competent at a certain thing. You know, they're really good at hunting or storytelling. So there is some inequality, but anthropologists call it achievement-based inequality. And so this leadership is pretty much always temporary. And as soon as someone becomes too narcissistic or too arrogant, then the group cracks down on, on that person. You know, there's just a lot of wonderful descriptions of that in ethnography. It sometimes reminds me, by the way, of Scandinavian societies, where you have this phenomenon that they call Yontas Law, which basically means um, that you shouldn't think too much of yourself, right? We have that in the Netherlands as well. We, we see success as a little bit of a crime. Um, you, it's really dangerous to become a best-selling author. Um, you should be very careful when that happens. And I think that's very healthy, actually, that you have these kind of societies that sort of protect us against the corrupting effects of power. But when you, indeed, when you don't have that, then um, ambition can just take over. Nain asks whether westernized societies perhaps construct more negative narratives around humankind and indigenous societies have a more positive outlook. Do you find that to be the case? I mean, perhaps that one, yeah. I think that is true. So 
if there's one thing really central to the view of human nature and humanity, or almost like socio-reality itself for hunter-gatherer cultures, it is that everything is connected and you're just part of something much, much bigger. I wouldn't say that it's it's like a, 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 some, some people have pointed out to me that, for example, Eastern philosophies are more like that as well. And uh, there are some Eastern philosophers that have a more hopeful view of, of humanity. But indeed, the uh, the adversaries in my book are pretty much all Western, rich, white men. And I think there's a reason, because obviously it's in the interest of those at the top to s- spread an ideology that says, look, humans are pretty much evil, selfish. And that's why you need us, right? That's why you need the military and the police and you need powerful people at the top, because otherwise it's going to be mayhem, right? It's going to be chaos. And, uh, and we want to protect you from that. If we actually... St- start trusting each other, that can be incredibly subversive. And those at the top can become a little bit worried. I think it's no coincidence that the only political ideology that believe that people are pretty decent deep down and power corrupts, which is anarchism, well, these anarchists were persecuted. They were, you know, they had to flee around the globe. For example, the the Russian prince uh, Kropotkin, who was one of the first basically to argue that Cooperation is an incredibly important force in in evolution, maybe even more important than competition. Well, he had to uh, flee for his life. He was was followed around the globe by the Russian Secret Service. And I think the reason is that those at the top really understand that a hopeful view of human nature is not just this kind of, I don't know, this nice and happy idea. It's a quite subversive idea with massive implications for how we organize everything. I, I actually will just ask this question then to you, Philippe, before um, I reluctantly um, draw it to a close. But somebody asks how you understand the church in the context of tribalism, you know, us and them with God on our side, which is the cause and the root of so much of the problems that you see, we all see. Well, we know that a lot of wars are driven by religious beliefs and a lot of very nasty things are done in the name of religion. But I think, as with everything we've touched on, nothing is ever quite what it seems, and it's not yes, no, black and white. And I, I confronted that in the rat line. You know, there's, at the end of the book, Otto Wächter escapes and makes his way to Rome, and he's assisted by a high-ranking Austrian bishop with big Nazi sympathies. And I'm very careful in writing those sections not to draw out that this is Wächter being supported by the Vatican. He was supported by one individual in that organization, and there would have been other individuals who would have taken a very different view, and indeed we know did take a different view in helping victims of political persecution, Jews, Roma, and others against the wishes of higher-ups. And I think that's one of the things that does offer hope, even when a collective group has taken a decision, there are people within that group who depart. There's a wonderful book written by the American writer and lawyer, Louis Begley, called Wartime Lies. It's a Penguin modern classic. He describes in it, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a fictionalized account of his own story. As a child living in the city that I care about, Viv, today, Lwolf Lemberg, and he's living with his aunt, illicitly, and a German officer discovers them. And contrary to their expectations, the German officer does the right thing, doesn't turn them in, nourishes them, looks after them. 
So how do we explain that? Mm. And there are many stories like that. Mm. And those are not the stories that tend to come out. The narrative that comes out, you know, is the sort of Daniel Goldhagen narrative, which I don't mm-hmm. accept. They're all Nazis. They're all terrible. It was a collective thing. It's, it's not like that. It comes back to this issue that even amongst groups doing terrible things, there are those who will stop and say, no, I'm not crossing that line. They have civil courage. We have it right now, two foot soldiers from Myanmar who have turned and have given evidence to proceedings before the International Criminal Court on the inside of what happened, who were not able to proceed themselves, so they say, to do what they were told to do. And that, for me, is the sign of hope. That continues. Mm. And frankly, it is right now in places like China and the treatment of the Uyghurs that we ask ourselves the question, who will be the individuals in those communities who turn around and do the right thing? I don't know what the answer to that question is, but there will be someone and there will no doubt be more than one who tries to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately why I inscribe myself in Rutger's general sense of optimism, despite all the horrible things I see, all the mass graves I've visited. Ultimately, if you take it in its totality, there's more good than bad out there. And that's, I think, what keeps me optimistic. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you both. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Rutger Bregman and Philippe Sands. It was presented by Hannah McInnes and produced by Luke Nailapero and myself. The editor was John Dorsey. If you enjoyed the show, you will love the live events we're hosting this autumn, including the pioneering Supreme Court Justice Lady Hale on her life and career, Harvard's Stephen Pinker on rationality, and philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy on 50 years of reporting from the world's humanitarian crisis zones. You can catch them all on stage in London or live streaming to your devices. Find out more at howtoacademy.com. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>